When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. <laughs> the transfer window is part of the Daily Record Podcast Network. Subscribe at iTunes or Audio Boom. Good day. The international break is over, and thank goodness for that. Who cares about World Cup qualification anyway? No one in this podcast, I can assure you of that. Why? Because as Ewan McGregor's character Rentboy says in the film Trainspotting, it's shite being Scottish. Anyway, moving on. Welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that mixes the profane with the profound. The former delivered by me, Henry McRae, while the latter comes from football insiders and Transfer Window regulars, Ian McGarry and Duncan Castles. Gentlemen, welcome. My leisure is your pleasure, rent boy. <laughs> Coming up, we'll look at the prospect of Arsenal not only selling Alexis Sanchez in the January window, but Meza Ozil as well. And is Brendan Rodgers set to walk alone all the way out of Celtic Park down to the bright lights of London to replace Antonio Conte and Stamford Bridge? But first, we might not be very good on football's international stage, but we do know a thing or two about club rivalries here in Scotland. And one in particular, of course, I think you all know the one I'm talking about. He's still on Shelby's Stenhouse Mirror. But there are, of course, big club rivalries in England and none bigger than Manchester United versus Liverpool, who conveniently enough play each other this weekend. So, gents, is this not only the biggest club rivalry in the Premier League, but is Mourinho versus Klopp now becoming the biggest managerial rivalry? Duncan. I think perhaps for Jurgen Klopp, he'd like to set it up as a big rivalry. Um, we've, we've heard them take a few uh, not-so-subtle pot shots at, at uh, Jose Mourinho during his time at Liverpool, but I don't think it's seen that way in reverse. I, I really don't think that Mourinho sees uh, Jurgen Klopp as his biggest managerial rival in the league, um, uh, not by a long stretch. And uh, I, I just don't think he's particularly worried about him in terms of watching what he's done with his club, the way he's uh, handled transfers, the way he set his team up. Um, obviously, the, the, you'll get a big test this weekend when, when they both play each other, um, missing key players. But it, it looks like a match that, that's set up for Mourinho and that the, the way to, to undo Liverpool is to... Um, to play a clever tactical plan against them, and, and Mourinho's got no shortage of those. Whereas Klopp, as we've seen in his two years in England, and he's just come to that two-year year anniversary, doesn't seem to have anything beyond his, his single um, go-all-out tactic and, and see what happens. I think also, Henry, that um, the rivalry between those two clubs, it, it's, it's more historical than it is current. Um, Liverpool having failed to win uh, the top title, <clears throat> for, uh, what, 22, 23 years now, uh, the closest they came was actually under um, the, the great Brendan Rodgers uh, in recent times, um, whether one Stephen Gerrard slip away, potentially, from actually claiming the Premier League title. But Against Jose Mourinho, of course. 
indeed against Jose Mourinho. And look, Klopp, I think, um, would like to make it into a bigger thing than it actually is. I think uh, anyone who's realistic in terms of their football knowledge and their football analysis would say that Liverpool are an inferior team, inferior squad to that of Manchester United, that Jurgen Klopp, for all his <clears throat> success in Germany with Borussia Dortmund, um, has maybe improved Liverpool slightly in his time there, but in his managerial record says that he uh, his win percentage is less than Brendan Rodgers when he, uh, during his time at Liverpool. So I think for um, Liverpool, this is a bigger game, both for the fans and the manager and the players against Manchester United, who are obviously joint league leaders, than it is uh, for the Manchester United players, manager and fans. Uh, I think the rivalry, which uh, really counts for Manchester United, is the one with Manchester City. And uh, to answer your question about the biggest rivalry between managers, I think Guardiola versus Mourinho remains the grudge match um, in English football. <clears throat> and obviously that's uh, carried over from their days in Spain together as Real Madrid and Barcelona coach. So, um, listen, it'll be, it'll be a, a think, fascinating contest uh, because Liverpool's performances under Klopp have been better against the top six teams and certainly the top 10 teams than they have been against the bottom ones. So I think for um, in terms of a test of Manchester United's title credentials, it will be probably more arduous than, than some and certainly more than maybe they expected. But at the same time, uh, I don't see Liverpool as title rivals uh, seven points behind. I think they are now. Um, I just, you know, the, the way they play, they're far too open. They've got almost no defence. They keep trying to keep out this guy called Zone, Zonal, who scores goals almost every week against them um, and doesn't get the credit. But uh, I, I do think that uh, it will be a, sort of a contest that won't actually decide anything, if you like. Whereas in the past years, obviously, Liverpool-Manchester games tended to have a proper signpost or at least stamp on where the title would go at the end of the season. Klopp arrived uh, in his first press conference and you know, poked fun at Mourinho, said, I'm the normal one. It's almost as if he... Uh, came to England and, and thought, "I'm going to pick that fight." Um, why would he? Why would he do that? Do you think? I think I think it's an easy fight to pick as a Liverpool manager. Um, you know, the, the Liverpool fans do not like Manchester United. It's their, it's their, and and vice versa. It's their big rivalry. It's the club that they lost their um, their English title record to. Uh, and you know, the one thing you can. You can say without doubt about Jurgen Klopp as he talks a good game. His press conference game is extremely entertaining. He um, gives good interviews. He, he he sells himself well and he sells his club well. I mentioned that press conference because I was watching a video on the Premier League television this week where they were, they were showing clips from that first press conference two years ago. One of the things he said in that press conference, he was asked obviously about the chances of winning the title, whether he expected to win the, the English title at Liverpool. And he talked about the difficulty of the league and then he said, I don't want to say we have to wait the next 20 years. I know when I'm sat here in four years, I think we win one title in our time, I'm pretty sure. Um, so which is, you know, fair enough. He's saying, I, I, give me four years, which is the length of the contract plus an option that Liverpool had to extend it. And, and I think I'm pretty sure I'll give you one title. And it was reported as that uh, as such. But just uh, I, I put that out on Twitter this week just as a you know a mark of the anniversary and sort of discussion point of how far he he, he got towards that stated aim. And I was informed that cast press conference, Jurgen Klopp actually 
clarified with the, the written media that by one title he meant one trophy, which frankly I find it extraordinary that a guy can come into a club with the expectation he had and his stated aim being, I'm pretty sure I can win one cup in four years at Liverpool. Particularly if you put that in the context of one of his, uh, his predecessors as a Fenway Sports Group manager, Kenny Douglasian, and we should probably say two predecessors because Kenny Douglasian and Steve Clark basically did the job jointly together. They had a better record in the, in the short period they worked for FSG, uh, winning one League Cup and getting to an FA Cup final, than Klopp was targeting in that first press conference if we take him on his clarification of one trophy in four years. The, the other thing, Duncan, I think we need to point out here is that um, Jose Mourinho, for Liverpool fans, is a very easy target. Um, and Liverpool fans hate him with a passion which is almost unbounded and unknown um, uh, in the Premier League and in recent times. Uh, we should also point out that Jose Mourinho is currently the most successful serving Premier League manager with three titles at Chelsea. Um, and therefore... Let's just say diverting, distracting attention from his own team's results stroke deficiencies. It's a very easy game for Klopp to play as soon as he mentions the J word. So in press conferences leading up to this match, in the press conference after the match, should they lose, it will be very easy for Klopp to, to pull some kind of veil over uh, another, say, disappointing result by saying, well, it was Jose Mourinho. Because Liverpool fans will say, well, yeah, let's deflect it all onto them, let's deflect it onto Manchester United, et cetera, et cetera. And again, it's about, well, is he doing a good enough job at Liverpool, given the resources he has at his disposal, given the players he's bought, given the players they kept, and obviously Philippe Coutinho is the player I mean by that. So, um, it's a big, I, think, I think it's a bigger game for Liverpool, it's a bigger game for Jurgen Klopp than it is for Jose Mourinho. If Mourinho walks uh, away from the game tomorrow with a point, I think he'd probably be slightly disappointed but happy. If Klopp loses and loses heavily, I think questions will be asked again about his methods, about his team selection, about his tactics, about the way in which uh, his team is set up. And I think we've got to be sort of sure that Family Sports Group is a business which operates sports franchises all over the world and expects them to be successful. Jurgen Klopp has yet to prove himself successful at Liverpool. So, not saying his job's in the line, because as you said, Duncan, he's very popular. He plays the game well with, in terms of PR and media. But at the same time, uh, he will be judged on results just like every other manager. And if a manager becomes available, who FSG think can actually make Liverpool more successful, then you can be sure his job will be on the line. Certainly, when the um, Liverpool have played Manchester United under these two managers, Klopp has been uh, very keen to stress the defensive nature of Mourinho's tactics. Um, I think it's done up uh, when it, both times they played last season. Speaking about long ball football, he's almost disparaging about uh, Mourinho's style of play. Um, I'm not sure we've heard the same back from Mourinho about Klopp. It's like he's not really engaging in that level of the debate. I did see uh, Kenny Dalglish, obviously Liverpool legend, in the Liverpool Echo today, repeating that line that he expects uh, Mourinho to come and park the bus, but that Liverpool would play the attacking football that Klopp had been hired to play and that the fans were, I think he said, couldn't be happier with how... 
Klopp had performed so far. I think like, Liverpool fans are traditionally very, very loyal to their managers. And we've seen that with Rafa Benitez, who still is, you know, lauded by them despite, you know, failing over successive seasons to deliver the one trophy that matters. Um, and that's fine. You know, that's a, it's a good quality for, for a group of fans to have because a lot of fans turn on managers very quickly. Um, Klopp is charismatic, so therefore he comes into the um, frame of being a well-liked uh, and well-supported coach. But, and I say it again, you can only hide behind that for so long because results will find you out. And unless they win a trophy, and we're talking Liverpool here, and I'm sick and tired of hearing people make excuses for Liverpool. I mean, people don't make excuses for Arsenal winning trophies. Arsenal won the FA Cup for the last three years in a row, and it's just about sustained Arsene Wenger's career. But as I think as Josie Mourinho has said on several occasions about other managers, Klopp included, Wenger included, if I had their job, I'd be basically it's like running an academy. I don't need to do anything to win anything. Whereas Mourinho's job is on the line uh, in terms of winning a big trophy this season, as is Guardiola's at Manchester City. Even though Mourinho has won two trophies, uh, or three if you count the Charity Shield, which of course he always does. Um, so, in a way, you know, Klopp has been the benefactor of some very, very um, lenient management above him to say that he's you know, okay to keep going and let's see if he wins a trophy here or there. Whereas other managers at other clubs in the Premier League, especially top four, top six, are under pressure every single day. And as I said, that's one thing which will I think will define uh, Klopp's season is whether he wins a trophy or not. Because if he doesn't return any silverware again this season, questions, serious questions at FSG level will be asked. Well, look, I think one thing we should say first is that the timing of this game is a bit unfortunate. Um, in that we're seeing the two teams play each other just after an international break, which both managers, I think, would tell you is the worst time to play because they, they basically get their players back today and, and maybe some of them only tomorrow will have one proper training session to prepare for the match. So they won't be in the best um, managerial tactical conditions going into the game. And also we've got two of the best players um, in, in the two squads out of the game with, with um, hamstring injuries. So Manny's out uh, with an, an injury he did on international duty and Paul Pogba's out and will continue to be out for a long time. Manchester United also have, which is, you know, no one's going to say he's their best player, but that'll, that'll, that'll affect the way they play. But it's interesting, this, this discussion and this sort of criticism of, of Mourinho saying he, he parks the bus when he comes to Liverpool. When, when we, were, we had this game last season, when um, Manchester United went to Liverpool fairly early on in the campaign, Liverpool riding the crest of a wave. I think they'd won, if not every game, they were unbeaten at that stage and they were being talked of as potential Premier League champions. Mourinho didn't park the bus. He went there, he, he used a tactic that Klopp didn't expect, which was to press high in the Liverpool half and to try and put pressure immediately on Liverpool's defenders and score a goal quickly. And for the first 45 minutes, that, that plan worked in that Manchester United had most of the territorial ball in Liverpool's half. They didn't manage to score a goal, but the plan worked. They, they blunted Liverpool's attack by starving over the ball. Then second half, Mourinho retreated into his own half and played, it, and played that what you could describe as park the bus system because his players were tired because they hadn't had as much rest going into it 
as Liverpool, we weren't playing European comp competition, had. So, it, you know, describing that as part of the bus when the when actual the initial system wasn't that is just deceptive and disingenuous. The other thing I don't get about this sort of Liverpool idea that um, we play attacking football and Jurgen Klopp came to play attacking football and that's the Liverpool way is my memory of those be of the best Liverpool sides, the sides that racked up all those English titles, was certainly of a team that could attack, but it was also of a team that could defend extremely well. You know, they were, they were a proper balanced football side who stopped the opposition from scoring goals and scored goals when they needed to them. <coughs> Needed them and also shut games down once they they got ahead in those games. They tended to win a lot of matches one nil. And in many ways, that's an archetypal Jose Mourinho team. So I think Liverpool are kind of denting their own legacy and possibly even stopping themselves from having a chance of future success by this kind of idea that they're some great bastion of attacking football and the only way you can properly win a league or properly win a a, a trophy is best attacking. I, I'd love, Duncan, I'd love to ask Liverpool fans um, en masse or just even 10 of them, you make the choice, park the bus, win the league, open the bus up, use the emergency exit, the sunroof, everything you can and get forward and lose with style and lose the league. What would you prefer? I'm sorry, it's, it, there's no choice there. You know, as I think it was actually Bill Shankly who said it, show me a good loser. And I'll show you a loser. So if that's what the Liverpool philosophy has come to these days, whereby they would prefer to att play attacking football and lose football matches and lose trophies, then that to me, that's not Liverpool. Not Liverpool Football Club, as, as I grew up knowing it. So is and, it and to be fair, there are, to be fair, there are lots of Liverpool fans who, who will at least privately admit that, and I think also publicly admit that they know that there's more to football than just going all, all out attack. But that that image has kind of been that that's what I mean, uh, Henry. You you pointed out by saying Kenny Douglas talks there about um, football, and they're going to park the bus. Um, you know, and that's Kenny Douglas speaking. You can't really. Don't, you don't want to criticise Kenny Douglas, but Kenny Douglas should know more about football and to, to deal in those kind of stereotypes um, of, oh, they only defend and we only attack and, and that's the best way and that, that's, that's how we're going to win. So it's not just a question of the, the tactics, though. I mean, should we look at the squads and, and you know, who's built the, the, uh, the, the better team? They've both spent money, obviously. There's obvious flaws in... Liverpool's uh, defence, which they did try to address and, and didn't. Do we do we think not just defence, Henry? Not just defence. I mean, Liverpool have been lacking a twenty goal a season striker since Luis Suarez left, and they still mm -hmm. haven't bought one. Um, the defence has been faulty and um, unmanageable almost because of the lack of players who can play together. Again since before Klopp even arrived. Why has he not sorted that? Why did he not bring in a striker? Look at, look at what Mourinho did instead. He knew he was losing Ibrahimovic through injury, so he brings in Romelu Lukaku. Now, obviously, that Lukaku was not an option for Liverpool, given that he played for Everton. That's not the point. There were players available. Obama Yang, possible Lewandowski, um, could have come in and, play, and, and, and they would have brought you 20 goals a season. Klopp didn't buy them. And instead, he agrees a deal for Naby Keita, Another sort of uh, attacking midfielder 
who'll get maybe 10, 12, 13 goals a season, when he's already got Firmino, Salah um, and Coutinho to fulfil those roles. It just doesn't make any sense. And I, I despair of managers who have the resources that they have and are a club like Liverpool who actually do not build a team properly. And one thing that you can never accuse Jose Mourinho of is not building a team properly because he looks at the whole picture, not just the attacking force or the defensive side or the midfield in terms of where they enforce, where they attack. He looks at everything and looks to see. And that's why Fellaini's become such an integral part of Manchester United because he looks like a misfit. But actually, he's a team player. And Mourinho's gotten the best out of him, like he did at every club he's been. He's, he's looked at players who are thought to be average or not particularly effective and gotten stuff out of them that they didn't even themselves agree, could have believed was theirs. Yeah, look, the Liverpool, there's, no, there's really no comparison in the quality of the squad. Um, there's obviously a difference in financial resource between Manchester United and Liverpool, but that difference in financial resources is overemphasised when people are saying, oh, well, Liverpool don't have the capability to build a squad that is able to compete for titles. Liverpool went into this transfer window briefing the local press that they would have £150 million to spend. Took in some more money, it wasn't all spent. They also pay high wages. They don't pay the absolute top wages in the Premier League, but they pay higher wages, considerably higher wages than, than Tottenham Hotspur, for example. And they're ready to go to, to high-level wages for certain players. And, and in there lies part of the problem that too often during the FSG era and beforehand, Liverpool have signed players badly on very high salaries for what they're able to do. I mean, you look back to signing like Joe Coles. Joe Cole, a superb player for Chelsea, but when Liverpool signed him, it was one year after he had had a serious ACL rupture, which if Liverpool had done the research properly, they would have found out that there were serious doubts whether he'd ever recover his game um, to the level where he'd be able to be a top Premier League player again. They gave him a four-year contract worth £5 million a year, which was a very high salary at that time. They ended up paying the player to leave because he, he just wasn't capable of playing at that level anymore. And Liverpool have done that kind of deal time and time again. You know, Mamadou Sacco, £20 million, best part £20 million transfer fee, £100,000 a week wages for a central defender that they end up loaning to Crystal Palace. Okay, they got a decent transfer fee in an elevated market at the end, but that's a waste of resource for the years that he was at the club. Now, go through their squad at the moment. As you point out, they don't have a proper centre forward. They've got some very good attacking players. They don't have a goalkeeper that the, that the, the manager trusts. They don't have a, an outstanding defender at all in their squad. They're still playing Alberto Moreno as a starting left-back, a guy they've been trying to sell for two years. Their midfield is, is again, imbalanced. They're, they've got a, a, a surfeit of players who want to go forward with the ball and don't want to do the dirty work of defending when the opposition have the ball, which cost them badly at Manchester City in, the, in, a, in a game that sent them kind of into a tailspin this season. So the, it's... But, but as you say, it's not, that's not a hard job. You identify the weaknesses in your squad, you use the resources you have and spend the money on reinforcing those areas. And that's exactly what Mourinho's done. Mourinho's bought seven players, six of them are first-team starters. 
um, for him. And, and all, apart from Lindelof, who, who is betting in at the moment, have contributed significantly and improved that squad to the point where you'd say they're probably only two really important weaknesses in their squad, where, where the next transfer window, when Mourinho has the, the budget to spend, he'll go and you know he'll, he'll spend the money there to, to do those final parts of the jigsaw. Where will Liverpool be in the next transfer window? They've got so many parts of the jigsaw to fill, it's, it's, it's unreal. I'm just I'm just looking at um, the two squads because I thought we could do a, a quick fire on who could from each squad could walk into the other club's first team and it's interesting that almost all the options in Liverpool are you know up front attacking players. Um, will we go for it? Will we try some names and see what you think? Go for it, Henry. Okay, well Ian, you'll go up first and I'll give you um, I'll give you one name and you tell me whether they can. They'd walk into the opposition first eleven. Philip Coutinho. Yes. Duncan, I'll give you Romelu Lukaku. Yeah, absolutely. Sadio Mane. Manchester United don't have a lot of pace. I would say, I would say yes, he probably would be a, a contender for starting eleven at Manchester United. I agree. Duncan. Duncan. Anthony Martial. Yeah, I think Anthony Martial would just about start for Liverpool. I think we, we, just before we carry on, I'd say when you do these things, you've got to do it in the context of this is Liverpool's team. Does the Man United player get into Liverpool the way they set up? And then does the Liverpool player get into the, the Man United one the way they set up? You don't do it as, well, we pick a combined best 11. OK, thanks for clearing up the quickfire round. Or <laughs> <laughs> just slowing it down. Indeed. Um, Ian, Emery Can or Chan, is it? No. Chan. Chan. Uh, Duncan. <laughs> Careful now. Uh, Duncan, Ander Herrera. Yes, Ander Herrera would go straight into that Liverpool side. That's exactly what they need in midfield. Ian, Adam Lalana. No. And Duncan, Marwan Fellaini. <laughs> yeah, I think they could. I think Liverpool could use them. But uh, whether you know Klopp would be able to manage them in the way that Mourinho has is another matter. Yeah, Klopp, Klopp would play as goalkeeper. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay. Um, well, we don't want to date this podcast too much, but um, what are our thoughts on this weekend's game? I reckon Manchester to win by two goals. That's an ambitious uh, prediction from Ian there, Duncan. I think uh, Mourinho will be happy to, like like Ian said earlier, I think he'll be happy to come away with a draw from this game, particularly with Fellaini injured. Um, you know, it's hugely important to him with, with Pogba out as well. So I think he'll set up cautiously and um, take a draw if you can get it and try and uh, take Liverpool on the counter and then maybe if it gets one early then the 2-0 is possible. Okay, well we've uh, we've looked at the managers, we've looked at the squad, we've looked at this weekend's game, albeit extremely briefly, but um, you know, Ian mentioned the Family Sports Group earlier, United obviously um, also owned by uh, an American family. Um, how do we compare and contrast the two ownership groups of these big English giants? Well, what's interesting, um, Henry, in terms of Manchester United is that um, one of the uh, basic uh, ideas of the Glazer family when um, agreeing to um, Sir Alex Ferguson's retirement uh, was that, uh, and this is well stated now, that um, Fergie only went on the basis he could choose a successor, which he did in David Moyes, and we all know what happened, etc., etc. But the reason, the reason that they really wanted to get Fergie out was to have more influence in the club, and by that I mean more influence in the football department, i.e., 
they wanted to be able to um, have an influence on buying players. They wanted to have an influence in terms of uh, the staff that were employed, etc., etc. They wanted to feel more part of Manchester United, which until that point, Ferguson, as everyone knows, ruled it as his own fiefdom. Um, so, uh, I don't think necessarily that has transpired to be the case. I think the Glazers, uh, the brothers, um, uh, Joel and Avram, who uh, are most sort of involved at United, um, have in fact, uh, and Brian as well, I should say, have in fact uh, realised that their, their ability, their, their skill set, if you like, is not actually suited to um, advising a soccer ball club in uh, Manchester of England. And therefore, they've allowed uh, the... Um, the accession of Ed Woodward, et cetera, et cetera, and um, the technical staff to take place. I think the point of Jose Mourinho was definitely a signal that the Glazers believed that they didn't, they were out of their depth, basically, in terms of making decisions. So they brought in a manager who is as autocratic as Ferguson was at, in his pomp as well. Um, Femi Sports Group, different altogether. Um, they do have an active role. They've got ambassadors, and by that I mean snitches, uh, at Liverpool, who report everything back to HQ, and um, and in fact, uh, every decision that's made has run past uh, the FSG um, executive board, etc. In terms of buying players, selling players, etc., etc. So you've got a very different setup in terms of the two uh, American owners of, of of two of England's the two of England's most famous clubs. I would agree. I would agree with part of that, but I would say there's actually quite. For me, there's a lot of similarities between FSG and the Glazers in the way that they came into the club. They're both, both of these projects are simply about making money. They didn't want to be involved in English football clubs for the glory of the game or because of any particular interest in the sport. They saw financial opportunity to buy a, a franchise in the most popular sport in the world where uh, television revenues were increasing on a... Uh, exponential scale where the valuations of clubs were increasing by 10% per year and and they both took advantage of um, different financial situations but they got, got the clubs on the cheap for themselves with the idea of making future profit. The difference between the two is that the, the Glazers got a working uh, project. So they had Sir Alex Ferguson there, they had the club that was winning most titles in England, they had a great squad, they could basically just leave him, carry on, change the commercial setup, which they've done a lot better than Liverpool have, uh, than FSG have in terms of exploiting financial revenues and, and, and cream off the profits each year. FSG got a club that was in, in more difficulties um, in terms of the, the playing staff, the managerial staff, um, wasn't as financially successful and they, they haven't really improved that greatly, didn't have the, 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 uh, as big a stadium. And they've made, a, a see, again, the similarities where, where the errors come in. When the Glazers shifted Ferguson out because they wanted to take more control, as you pointed out, Ian, then they started to hit problems. Then they uh, gave the wrong man the, the job of chief executive. Then they started making very bad buys in the transfer market, overpaying players, appointing the wrong managers when, when they had their first choice. And, and they had to bring in the top and were fortunate enough to be able to bring in the top manager to fix things. FSG have just been in that process of making mistakes, you, making the wrong appointments or leaving the, the wrong guys in charge, um, trusting statistical models for player recruitment, um, not using 
taking the advice of a certain person who's leading them down the wrong, the wrong pathway. I mean, you, you look at something that happened this week at Liverpool, which probably wasn't greatly reported, but they sacked um, the physio, Andy Renshaw, um, who's now the second physio to go in the two years in which Klopp has been at the club. And we know that Liverpool have had a lot of injuries throughout Klopp's period at the team. And that, that guy, Andy Renshaw, was, was someone who was an ENR appointment uh, recommended to him by uh, the club doctor, um, Andrew Massey, because he felt that he would be um, a handy ally to have in the department. And, and it hasn't worked. And those kind of decisions, which don't seem so important on the surface, you know, the average football fan, will, an average football observer will say, well, a physio's a physio, a club doctor's a, a doctor. Um, they're all much of a muchness. They have big repercussions. Uh, if you if you get extra injuries because you put the wrong physio or the wrong doctor in charge, then you have less of your talent on the field and you get poorer results off the back of it. So I, I think there's there's quite a lot in, in, in common with the two. And the problem is, fundamentally, they, they're not football people. They're in it for the money. You talked about the uh, statistical analysis for recruitment there, but that's obviously what they did um, in baseball, um, with the, yeah. the Red Sox following the the money ball idea popularised by the uh, uh, Oakland A's, uh, he yep. says, grasping for the name. Um, is it? Do we think money ball has got a a path to success in football, or is it? No, money ball. No? Money ball can't work in football, Henry. Um, baseball. Uh, NFL, basketball, statistically, uh, let's let's just, let, let's let's strip this right down, okay? <clears throat> uh, people who uh, have um, have gambling uh, uh, franchises, let's just say, um, the results in terms of statistics, as statistic-led results, are much easier to predict in those three sports. <clears throat> which suggests, therefore, that your personnel are also easier to judge in those three sports. And that's because um, a player in basketball, NFL or baseball has a skill set which probably extends to three, between one and three things. In football, and I'm talking about soccer here, that skill set is much greater, it's much, much more variated, and therefore predicting results based on individuals because remember that in, in, in soccer, football, uh, the play involves, can involve all 11 players in any one move, including the goalkeeper. Whereas in baseball, you're looking at the pitcher and the, and the guy who's holding the bat. In the NFL, you're looking at your offense, your defense, or your kicking team. And in basketball, you're looking at any uh, number of, small number of players at any one time on the court doing the same thing, trying to get the ball in the basket. Football is a variable which is way beyond statistics. You think about a player uh, who wakes up on a Saturday morning of his game, has an argument with his wife because one of his kids is sick. He plays a bad game. Now, that happens obviously in other sports as well, but in football, that person is one of a number of 11 players who needs to be performing at their best if that team are going to win. You, you take a player who's not 100% or is worse than that, 50%, you play with a man short. That's why Moneyball won't work, so, and that's why Moneyball uh, statistical analysis will not either will not get you the best players either, because a player changes circumstances in, in football, he goes into a new team, 
again, he's one of 11. And he's not just facing one opponent at a time, even though it's a team game, or even four opponents one time in case of basketball. Um, it's, it's about the making of a team unit. And if you ask or you look at any team that's won a major champions, uh, a major championship, uh, be it Premier League or Champions League, etc., etc., in football, you will see a team of 11 players who are united in their goal and who actually play well together as a unit. That's very different. Well, you've clearly thought a lot about that. Hello, my name I, is Ian McGarry and I'm a ga gambling addict. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I, I call it risk management, not gambling. If I could just uh, I discuss that a little, I would say that I think there is a value in Moneyball but it's about the quality of the data and the, the quality of the analysis. An example with Liverpool, they use a, a, an algorithm that they put data on players through um, before they make any transfer. That's, that's an FSG introduction at the club. Liverpool were offered Sadio Mane. The year he um, went to join Southampton in the Premier League, he went through the Liverpool algorithm. The Liverpool algorithm said, no, he's not a Premier League player. Then they end up signing him, what, two, three years down the line for um, three or four times the, the transfer fee. So their analysis, their data wasn't good enough there. I agree with Ian that there's a big difference between baseball in particular and football. Baseball is a much more simplistic game. Therefore, it's easier to, to, to gather your data. You can have data on more elements and your data can be more accurate. Therefore, you get better predictions based on data and, you can, and, and it's easier to produce analytical models. Football is a more complicated game. There's more moving parts. You've got to, you've, if it, it's, it's just a big scientific problem. You know, Benjamin Mendy outed me a few weeks ago as a graduated doctor and, and actually my, my PhD was on behavioral science and it was on looking at uh, complex behavior and trying to break it down into um, data elements, little parts of, of, of that behavior that you could score and then compare individuals and say, what that individual was doing in a given situation and what you expected them to do in the, in the next situation. That's essentially what these Moneyball um, models are trying to do. They're trying to break football down into parts, code it into data and predict what's going to happen next. But that's very tough. And if you, I can produce you a model, any scientist can produce you a model and break a football match down into bits of data. Whether that model's predictive or not is a completely different matter. And I don't think anyone has got there yet. It'll be interesting to see if people do manage to get there, but it's a far harder area to do it in than other sports. Therefore, if you're going to base your recruitment on it, you can expect to make big mistakes. And for me, the better model for recruitment still at the moment is to have a manager who knows what he wants in the squad and then very capable scouts and can do the kind of background checking on a player's character, um, his family, his, uh, his weaknesses off the pitch, whether he'll fit into a team or not. So you, you get the elements of, is he technically and physically capable and is he mentally and socially and culturally capable of working the team? And then you make a decision based on that. that that's the more <coughs> model still in football. I know someone who does just that job, Duncan, and it's a very good point you make. <laughs> okay. Well, I did say this was a mixture of profound and profane. So let's move on from that science bollocks and move back to football. 
we've got uh, news that Brendan Rodgers has moved into uh, one of the favourites as the potential replacement for Antonio Conte at Chelsea. Duncan, have you got some insight into what's going on there? Well, look, I think Chelsea would be insane not to be looking for a replacement for Antonio Conte because Antonio Conte's position is he will leave at the end of the season if he survives that long. He hasn't been sacked by the end of the season. He plans to go elsewhere. He's advertised his availability. He's looking for a club where he can win the Champions League. So his plan is to go. Therefore, Chelsea need to be looking at replacements. Brendan Rodgers is an interesting name to propose. Obviously, he was at Chelsea during the early years of the, of the Abramovich era. I understand he had a, a reasonable relationship with the owner. So there is you know, a, a bit of grist there and you could say that um, he, he could be a potential candidate because he has that Chelsea history. Personally, I, I think it would be a, a mistaken appointment for them to go for a, for a man like that who is, is, hasn't really showed himself to have the maturity to handle a top Premier League job. Um, when he when he was, uh, I'd, I'd say I'd have to cut you off there, Duncan, and say that, as I said before in the uh, in the podcast, he was one Stephen Jarrett slip away from winning the league. So I think I think he has shown his ability to manage a top Premier League club. And in fact, I would say that Chelsea would be perfect for him because he will bring the kind of attacking football that Bramwich has always uh, cherished and and wanted to Chelsea. Remember the uh, not apocryphal, completely accurate story about how Bramwich wanted to buy a football club when he watched Real Madrid take apart Manchester United in a Champions League quarter-final. <clears throat> I think that was 2001. He still probably hasn't had that kind of football uh, at Chelsea in terms of its totality uh, since he bought the club 14 years, 13, 14 years ago. Brendan would bring that. Brendan would also bring stability in terms of um, what we've seen as very confrontational coaches in the last two years in the shape of Conte and Mourinho before him. Um, Brendan is a much more temperate character who would, uh, I think, fit in with the structure and by that I mean would accept players being bought over his head uh, by Granovskaya, uh, Marina Granovskaya and <clears throat> sports director Michael Ebonalo. Uh And he knows the club. He spent a few years there as, uh, working in the academy and became academy director. Uh, knows the club very well. Uh, gets on very well with some of the senior players uh, who he's still in touch with who have since left. But then you've got Frank Lampard currently coaching under 18s, doing his badge badges with them as well. So someone, again, who could he could rely on as an ally and bring into um, any kind of consultation process regarding the players. So um, I apologise for being rude and cutting into your answer, but I, I do think that, that Rodgers is, in some ways, a very good fit for Chelsea. Just, um, just, to, just to carry on a rude theme, but... Um... Real Madrid tore Manchester United apart so badly that United won 4-3 that night. Um, okay, I, I, my, my, my memory is of Ronaldo uh, a cutting, cutting through Manchester's defence uh, at, at will. So whether or not Manchester won the game or not, it's just a, that's, just, that's an, an aside. That's an aside, right, okay. You sound <laughs> like a Liverpool fan. Sorry, sorry Henry, Henry. Who's, <laughs> you who's, show me a good loser and I'll show you a loser. I think who's, indeed. And, 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 and which, club, which club between Real Madrid and Manchester United has won the most Champions League titles? I'm not uh, sure what uh, that's got to oh, do yeah, with it. Oh, that's it. Oh, I think it's got a lot to do with it. <laughs> Duncan, save, save this conversation, please. 
Well, one thing I would say is that you, you certainly couldn't describe Brendan Rodgers as a good loser after what happened when uh, when he lost the, the English title um, to uh, Stephen Gerrard's slip as uh, as Liverpool to um, being tactically outthought, I think, as most other people would, would categorise it. So he's got that side to him. He, he, he's not a good loser. Okay, so do we think... I, I think that's a save. I think that's a save. That's a save? Okay. Well, it's a hell of a save. <laughs> <laughs> you should have been in goals for Real Madrid that night. They might not have shipped four. Um, <laughs> okay. I didn't, well, say, I didn't say they defended well, Henry. Come no, on. Really not. Um, right, let's let's move back to Arsenal. When we, we, we did mention at the top that um, there was a potential for... Uh, there seems to be a p- potential now for Arsenal to possibly move on. Um, probably their two biggest names, or certainly two of their biggest names, um, in January, Alexis Sanchez and Mesut Ozil. Ian, what's your take on this? Well, I think it's significant that, that Wenger has, has said, for the first time, admitted that both players could be sold in January. He said it's a possibility. Now, this is the manager who said, in the summer, repeatedly, neither will be sold. But as we found out uh, a, no one wanted to buy Mesut Ozil, and B, the only reason Alexis Sanchez moved to Manchester City fell through is because Arsenal's move um, for Thomas Lamar fell through. So, <clears throat> the fact that he, Wenger's now admitting this, I think, tells us that, first of all, the club, um, financially, is now sizing up the uh, prospect of, of the hit they will take in terms of transfer fee stroke wages paid to those players in the last four years. And rather than lose them for free next summer, would uh, be open to offers for them in the January window. Um, I think also um, you've got to look at, well, what's the probability here? Um, and I would say that uh, there's a very contrasting personality uh, between uh, Sanchez and Ozil. Ozil, um, I, I think, feels himself, has admitted to himself uh, internally uh, and mentally, has conceded that his best days are behind him. And so what he wants to do now is simply get the best possible wage packet for the remainder of his career. Reports say that Arsenal are offering him in excess of £300,000 a week, which I think is astonishing given the return that he has had for the club in the time he's been there. But it's their money if they want to burn it, fair enough. Sanchez, on the other hand, is, is a winner, wants to win more trophies. He's 29. He wants to go to a club where there's ambition. He wants to win more, he wants to win more major trophies in his career having won everything at Barcelona and a couple of FA Cups at Arsenal, which I'm sure, you know, will be somewhere in his uh, sort of safe in the bottom of his bedroom because uh, they're not medals that I think he'll be particularly proud of. Therefore, Manchester City, I think, is a project that he admires. We know he was desperate to go there. The possibility, of course, is, and we've said it before, he could get dispensation to play in the Champions League because he'll be a Europa League player this season um, and therefore transferring to Manchester City in January would give them another option uh, going into Champions League knockout qualification should they make it and they should do so my analysis is that Arsenal will sell both if they can I think they'll struggle to sell Ozil um, Arsene Wenger's granny is probably more transferable than he is but Sanchez I think will leave too much just to say yeah look I, I think I think Sanchez definitely wants to go we, we know Arsenal were prepared to sell him in the last window, um, we had Danny Alves talking this week about how he would encourage him to come to Paris Saint-Germain. So you've potentially got Paris Saint-Germain and Manchester City competing for him. So you know, it doesn't get much better than that if you're a selling club. 
Um, Ozil, I agree with your analysis. And you just got to look at, at what his agent has been saying this week. Um, you know, they've been floating the idea that there were only three clubs that Ozil would, would leave Arsenal for, or wanted to leave Arsenal for. For those were Real Madrid, his previous club, Barcelona, or Manchester United. Um, I don't see any chance of him going to Real Madrid or Barcelona. Um, Manchester United. We talked in the podcast podcast last week that. It's not a player Mourinho can see as an upgrade on his current squad and not a priority era, so they don't see that happening. Um, so it was no surprise to me when the agent then said on the record this week that, that Ozil wants to spend two or three um, years more in the Premier League and that uh, discussions with Arsenal have been going well over a new contract because that seems to be the logical outcome as long as Arsenal want to keep him. I don't see that he has an out within the Premier League um, elsewhere, um, and certainly not for a transfer fee in January. So the likelihood would be that he signs that new contract um, and stays at Arsenal. Is it, Henry, is it true that East Stirling should have made an inquiry for Ozil? No, no, I think they're quite uh, loaded in that position, actually. Are, are, they, in fact, are they? In fact, I'm trialling for it myself in a couple of weeks. Oh, right, so they've got an overload of lazy German midfielders who don't do very much then, yeah? Well, probably an overload of lazy Scottish ones, but anyway. Um, gentlemen, I think we've uh, reached the end of our allotted time for this week. Unless either of you have got anything else to, to, to bring up in this uh, podcast? I'd say this, Henry. Um, if Koeman loses, uh, Everton lose to Brighton this Sunday, I think he will leave the club and look out for Chris Coleman, a man whose future at Wales is undecided and a man who I think and his agent has been contacted by at least two Premier League clubs with regards to taking over in the very near future. So uh, I'll happily leave my podcasting for today on that note. Duncan, who's going to be the next Scotland manager? I don't know who's going to be the next Scotland manager, but I would say to the SFA, please, please, please get in touch with Sir Alex Ferguson and see if he's so bored with retirement you can persuade him to come and take a part-time job and be manager again. And if you can't get him, Steve Clark is a top coach who is out of work and I think would significantly improve the, the Scottish national team. And, and on that note, can we please get Graham Hunter as his assistant? <laughs> we want to qualify we want to qualify well for once okay gents excellent as always that was the transfer window podcast available on itunes audio boom and uh, all the other places that you might find it um we'll be back next week i uh, hope you enjoyed it thanks for joining us and see you soon